All right, well, I'd like to ask our panelist speakers to come on up for this Q&A session. Again, thank you so much for the questions that you sent in. We got many, many, many questions, and I know we won't be able to get to all of them this morning, so I apologize if we don't get to your question, but I think this will be a beneficial time for us all. I have not kept track of exactly who our panelists will be this morning. So we may have an empty seat. We are missing Vody. Okay. That's okay. Well, we have a broad range of topics in the questions before us this morning. And um, any of these questions are for any of you men. I do want to start off with one that is just a classic um, anthropology question. Um, This is for any of you. And the question is this, is man composed of a body and spirit or body, soul, and spirit? Joel, I think your phone's ringing, brother. Would you please... uh... I'll try. Um, When the Bible uses more words than one to describe something, it's putting an emphasis on something. And when Paul says, for example, I pray God your whole body, your soul, and your spirit be held blameless, he's not distinguishing soul and spirit as if that's two different people or or two different... uh, parts of man. Actually, man is one whole, and that's the violent ripping apart at death that makes death the king of terrors, because in the resurrection, we get our soul and our body, so may I say it, put back together again, and man is really one. But if you want to break it into two parts, of course, the soul is the essence of the core of the inner being of who you are. But soul and spirit are used pretty much as synonyms uh, in, in the Bible. Sometimes it just speaks of body and spirit as if that's all there is because the soul is your inner, your innermost being, the, the essence of who you are from within. And, of course, there's <clears throat> all kinds of relationships between your soul and your body, but there's no, we, we're not tripartists. We don't believe that man is made up of three parts but uh, soul and body. And if you want to use the word spirit and body, that's fine too. I, I think that um, also, for, let me give you an example. Talking about God, it says, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So you have iniquity, transgression, and sin. You go to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Some some exegetes would want to take each one of these words and, and nuance it. And of course, there is, in some cases, um, it's valid to do that. But especially in the, in the Hebrew mind, from the way I understand it, is, is this idea of heaping one term upon another for emphasis. Uh, we also see this with phrases, Hebrew parallelisms, especially in the book of Proverbs, or let me make one up, the wicked shall not live in the land, the wicked shall be destroyed. It's, it's saying the same thing, but just giving greater and greater emphasis. And so when we see these texts, 
like this, or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It, it, the idea is with your entire being, with everything you are, and we shouldn't really get lost in the nuance of it. There's been some really bad theology that has emerged from that tripartite view of mankind. I'm thinking of uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer, who was an Anabaptist leader, and he built a whole understanding of anthropology based upon that First Thessalonians 5 passage. And it's, it's like the body is irredeemable, um, the spirit doesn't need to be redeemed because it's without sin, and the soul is kind of the arbiter. And it's, I mean, that's, that's nuts. The Bible does talk about the inner and the outer life, and obviously the inner life is more important than the outer life. We've talked about that in this conference. Um, Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, said, don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear him who can kill your body and cast your soul into hell afterwards. So there's inner, outer. And yeah, what these brothers said about the way those things are emphasized, the inner life is emphasized with spirit and soul and strength, heart, mind, all of that. So we're, we're not just material beings, obviously, but to try to parse it out in ways that the Bible doesn't encourage us to do can lead to all kinds of bad conclusions. I think one other thing that is very important, and, and that's the light that the incarnation of our Lord brings to this. There's been a tendency in Christianity, we see in the, in the patristics and things where you have this tendency towards a, a strange spirituality that, that eliminates the body's importance. And what we need to see in the incarnation of our Lord is that the full redemption of a person and how important the body is in the new heaven and the new earth and, and everything that he's doing, that um, I find it magnificent that he loses nothing to death and that he redeems the entire man. And his incarnation is proof of that also. It's also interesting that um, the Bible speaks very little of the intermediate state, doesn't it? It says the soul goes to God as soon as you die and the body goes to the earth, Ecclesiastes. And then it's almost silent in the intermediate state. Why? Well, because the intermediate state is so short compared to eternity. Eternity is forever and ever. So the focus is going to be, of course, on the whole man being redeemed, soul and body, in the resurrection and being, being with God forever. The next question, uh, can you address biblical anthropology in the domain of sexuality? Is same-sex attraction sin or only actions taken out of same-sex attraction? Yes, I think same-sex attraction is sin. And this is a, um, a detailed, detailed debate that's going on right now, even amongst some very good guys like Robert Gagnon, who takes a, a more nuanced view opposing what I just said, and Jared Moore, who has uh, got a book coming out on this, I think, but he did a lot of study in his doctoral studies on uh, sexuality at Southern Seminary, who says basically what I just said. There's a difference between a man having sexual attraction to a man and a man having sexual attraction to a woman. Now, no doubt, lust is sinful across the board, but a man's attraction to a woman is wrong if it's not his wife. Sexual attraction or lust is wrong, but it is not unnatural. 
in the sense that God created men and women uh, for each other to have a unity together in marriage. It is, you can, it could be a right and good thing for that attraction to be expressed in marriage. It can never be a right and good thing for the attraction between uh, a man and a man to be expressed. And that's Romans 1. You know, it is unnatural, Paul says, contrary to nature. And in the whole um, effort to talk about gay Christianity, revoice, uh, living out, these things that I think are, are perhaps well-motivated, let's give them the benefit of the doubt that they really are trying to minister to people whose loves are so disordered that they find themselves pursuing unnatural relationships. And the, the big statement has been, okay, you got side A and side B homosexuality. So it's never right to act on those desires. But if you have the desires and you don't act on them, then you know, you're just, I've, we've had evangelical Christians say, those are real heroes. These are the heroes of the faith because they have homosexual desires, but they refuse to act on them. And it just shows how sacrificially they're living to Christ. Well, we should never act on sin. And those desires are sinful in and of themselves. And you don't help someone by telling them that their sin is not sin. You cut them off from the only hope they have in Christ through God's grace. And so I, I don't, it is not loving to tell someone who struggles with same-sex attraction that that innate desire is not, not sinful. Now, praise God, you don't act on it. That's right. But go to war on the desire. Keep fighting that. And the same thing would be true for a, a man who has uh, lustful thoughts for a woman. Those are sinful thoughts. They ought to be put to death. But the, the idea of a man finding a woman attractive as a possible mate, that's not sinful. That is, that is moving down a channel that God has ordained to be right and good in marriage. So... Again, it's a, it's a finely debated uh, issue, and I'm grateful for the debate because what I see happening with movements like Living Out and Revoice is basically a downplaying of the unnaturalness, the, the contrary to created order that has happened in the distorted loves of homosexuality, gender dysphoria, and all that we are now treating as commonplace in our day? I think um, for years and years, theologians have warned about your entire view of God, Scripture, and everything is determined by your view of the first two chapters of our Bible. And there we see God acting in sovereignty. He's ordering cosmos he's he's ordering the world as he has determined it to be in his infinite wisdom and the one thing that happens i think in reprobation is that you, it's kind of like abortion when it started out you know abortion in the first few weeks we would never ask for more and then abortion in months we would never ask for more and it keeps going down until now 
even the baby who survives abortion, let it die. Well, it's the same way with God. They, they, it, it's just not content to sin, but sin keeps going until literally it desires to uproot the very foundation of God's decrees to destroy absolutely everything of the will of God. And that's where I think we've, we've arrived with this because one of the greatest institutes is family and the order that God put there. And they want to uproot it and do away with it entirely. And the ultimate goal is to do away with God. One thing I, I found that's helpful in this uh, very vitriolic subject for a young man, for example, who feels he's been attracted to other young men from, from as long as he can remember, and he's abstaining himself, and therefore he's, he's not sinning, is to just remove yourself from that situation a moment and ask yourself this question. If I said to you, ever since I can remember, ever since I was born, I've always wanted to possess everything I see. I'm by nature a thief. I want to just take everything. I see you with a purse. I want to take that purse. That's just who I am. But praise be to God, I'm not sinning at all because I never take your purse. I restrain myself. Would you compliment me and say, wow, you're using a lot of self-restraint? Or would you say, yes, it's good you restrain yourself, but this is a product of the fall. If there were no fall, you would never, you would never have this desire to possess everything because you, you were created to serve. And so what I try to do is I try to explain to these young men with compassion you know, this, this is a product of the fall. Romans 1, um, 20, 27 is a product of the fall, leaving the natural use of women, burning their lust toward one another. So original sin is in all of us, and it manifests itself in different ways. But we must never call right what God calls wrong, even in the desire. We sin in our thoughts. We sin in our words. We sin in our speech. And so, yes, it's sin, and God can cure you from that sin. Confess your sin and go to God, whatever sin it may be, and God can help you. One thing that may be helpful for our audience, you know, it's, we need to understand what the difference between desire and temptation is, because the, the question often arises, well, Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. So can't you be tempted towards these things yet be sinless in that temptation. So what is the difference there between desire and temptation? Can I, can I just read this here? It says, blessed, is, this is from James chapter 1, verse 12. It says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. 
And I think we have these categories of there's temptation, and then there's desire, and then there's action. And, and I think another way of putting the desire to sin is coveting. I think that's what we would call it in the Old Testament. That is coveting something, is desiring something that you should not have or you cannot have and it does not belong to you. And so that desire for that uh, has to be put to death. And it's temptation when we, when we uh, entertain the temptation and it, you know, it, it grows then into desire. That's, that's where we then become sin instead of putting it to death from the moment that it enters our mind. Regarding our Lord, sin, the temptation was laid before him, but there was no affinity. There was nothing in him that desired it. He hated it. But, you know, when we say that, that God does not sin, it's not that he has the power to resist sin. Uh, there's nothing to resist. He hates it with a pure hatred. Us, even as believers, there is still something of an affinity. There is something in our flesh that grabs a hold of that, that desires that. But with Christ, our mighty, mighty Christ, he hated it. And that's one of the reasons why we love him and we see him as extraordinary. I'd like to underscore what Joel just did because it is so useful in helping to clarify uh, ethical issues today, especially on this issue, sexuality. Uh, what he did is he took the argument of the attraction's not sin, but the action on the attraction is sin, and he applied it to different sins, to, to thievery. And you see, well, no, that's ludicrous. And it just shows us how far we have been moved in our culture to try to accept these things, uh, the homosexual agenda, number one, because uh, this has been a strategy that they have uh, hatched and, and very forcefully moved on our culture the last 20 plus years and, and with great success. So if you take thievery or take something even more onerous that the Bible talks about, like bestiality, and say, well, what about, you know, a, a, a person who's attracted in that way and, and yet doesn't act on it? Is, is that not sin? Well, of course, we still, still, may not in a few years, but we still have enough uh, sense of God's righteousness that is around us in the world to, to revolt against that. You know, he's, no, 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 our, our, our pedophilia, which is being pushed today, the minor attracted, uh, what's it, minor a person, a minor attracted person. You know, this, this is an agenda now that's following in on that. So whenever you hear these things, and, and it's usually couched in very sympathetic terms, you got to be loving. Don't, you know, if you, if you say that this is sinful, that these attractions are sinful, then, then you're just being so harsh and unloving. Take it, take the same argument, apply it to a different sin and see how it measures up. And if it doesn't measure up, then go back and and start looking at the argument more carefully because uh, very likely you're just being manipulated. I, I think the, the reason we do that is because we've accepted some, some fundamental untruths. One fundamental untruth that we've accepted is that homosexuality is just like 
heterosexuality, right? We, we, we equate them. Um, we equate them because we've accepted the idea that, that people are, are born like that. We accept them because we've accepted the idea that people have an innate, immutable, unchangeable orientation. Uh, and, and, and that it's the same as a person having um, an innate, immutable uh, ethnicity. It, it's the same thing. Um, and once we've accepted those things, then it becomes difficult for us to do what Joel just did and what you just commended, which is to put it in the same category as other things that we continue to believe are abhorrent. Um, and there, there, there has been a specific strategy to change the way that we think about this. Um, there's a book that I've mentioned, you know, uh, a number of times over the years called um, After the Ball, um, How America Will Overcome Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the Decade of the 90s. It was published in 1989. And if you get it today, it reads like a history book. Um, and it was a, a strategy. Here's the strategy we need to employ. And there were three main parts of the strategy. One was desensitizing. Desensitizing was the idea of just getting images out there, right? Making, making people, continue to make people see it. Continue to make people see it. Um, if, if you continue to make people see it, they'll get desensitized to it, okay? That was, that was the first part of the strategy. Put it out there. Um, use the media, use education, um, use everything that we can to desensitize people. They're going to be offended at first, but again, desensitize them. Um, by the way, one of the ways you desensitize them is that you don't show them the dark underbelly. So you, you, you hope they never go to a gay pride parade and see what actually happens there. You hope they just see the news report that just shows you glimpses and shows you public officials making speeches at the great gay pride event so that, so that you don't see the debauchery that is a gay pride parade, right? So that's part of the desensitizing. Second step is jamming. Now what jamming does is jamming takes images that you abhor, um, skinheads, Nazis, KKK, and they equate being anti-homosexual with being those things. So that every time you think about this biblical idea, these things that we've heard, there's something in you that goes, you know, you, you want to defend yourself. That's why when preachers preach on homosexuality today, you get like 10 minutes of apology beforehand, right? Can you imagine a preacher going, now listen, before I preach this message um, on, on, on pedophilia, just know God loves pedophiles. I have friends who are pedophiles. I but that's what we do when we preach on homosexuality because of jamming. And then the third phase is conversion. Um, conversion is not making people themselves, um, you know, LGBTQAI2S plus, whatever. Um, Conversion is about turning people into allies. By the way, the A, LGBTQIA, that's for allies, right? Conversion is about turning people into allies so that they go to war on your behalf on this. And, and that's the strategy um, that, that, that has been carried out uh, incredibly effectively and successfully. Um, so much so that now, um, 
the desensitizing has really turned a corner to now it's, it's, it's coercion. It's not you get used to seeing the images. Now it's you've been so converted that if a hockey player says, I'm not wearing the rainbow gear, y'all hear this just a couple of days ago, right? I'm not wearing the rainbow gear. Um, then, then, then people in the news media are saying the, the NHL's got to do something. They need to find this team. They, they need to do something. So just know that, you know, our thinking on this has been co-opted, um, that it continues to be co-opted, and that's why exercises like this one are incredibly important. Put, put another sin in that category. Think about how you would respond and then ask yourself, what has happened to you and your Christian sensibilities so that you have to have an exercise like that in order to think rightly about this particular sin. Um, are there more components to the cultural mandate in addition to work? Bodhi, you pretty well established that the cultural mandate is still in effect. Are there more components to that cultural mandate? Yeah, so remember, I talked about pursuing truth, beauty, and goodness. Um, it, it's, it's not just um, our work, but um, it's, it's taking pleasure in, um, in beauty, in, in things like, you know, art and, and music and literature and these sorts of things. Um, it, it is expressing that God-given desire for truth, beauty, and goodness through all the things that we do. One of the things I brought up was parenting, right? Um, you know, and we'll talk about that some in, in, in my message today, but, you know, the whole idea, it's be fruitful and multiply, right? And then, you know, exercise uh, this dominion. Um, the only way that that mandate was going to be carried out is through uh, the fruitfulness, right? And so fruitfulness is not just about having children. It's about having children and raising children and training children with a view toward them continuing um, in this. So it's, it's, it is our work, um, but it, it's our work in the sense that it's everything that our hands find to do. Mm. You, know? hey, you, you teach at a liberal arts university in Lusaka and I teach at a liberal arts school here in Florida, and what I often tell my students is the difference between a science and an art. A science is a body of, all, of knowledge which you study in order to know, and art is their skills which you master in order to produce. And so production out of that work is, is massive when it comes to the cultural mandate. Can I, I add something to that? <clears throat> As someone who has 10 children, I'm a big believer in be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> you know, and I think that is part of the cultural mandate. You know, that God says, be fruitful. You know, it's interesting that that's really the f once, as, as after he created man and woman, that's the first thing he says to them. And it's interesting, he says, and God blessed them, and God told them, be fruitful, multiply. In our culture today, do we consider children a blessing? You know, and then it wasn't just then. Then Noah, they come off the ark, the first thing God says and it says, and God blessed him and said, be fruitful, multiply. And then God calls Jacob, and it says, and God blessed him and said, be fruitful, multiply. This is something that, again, at the creation of the world, to Noah, at the creation of the nation of Israel, 
All of these points, at the beginning of each of these points, God blesses, and the very first blessing he gives is be fruitful and multiply. Well, Bradley and, uh, and Vody, we, uh, we just published a book called Sweeter by the Dozen. <laughs> you, you would both enjoy that book a lot. <laughs> so keep going, brother. And, 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 and I would also say that when you look at the church, that it's the same thing. He blesses us and he calls us to be fruitful and multiply. That's right. That's right. And then but God he, says... But, but in, in this it? book, it's very, very interesting because the author does two things. First, he was a judge in the Grand Rapids area, just a really godly man. But he first gives the story of all 13 of his children. And he talks about each one and how he loves them. And it's very moving. Wow. And then the second half of the book is he looks at all the biblical arguments that are made today about people planning just to have these small families. And he just demolishes them one by one. Needless to say, it's not our best runaway seller. <laughs> but but it, it, the same thing we were just talking about with homosexuality, he shows how the culture's attitude of selfishness and I want my desire no matter what, um, that it just degenerates also in this area so that people plan as if they're God and say, well, we're just going to have two kids, you know. And so he, he really demolishes all of that. And it's, it's powerful because he wanted to be an airplane pilot and he had all these dreams and visions and he said, well, with child number four, all my plans came crashing down and I had to deny myself, but I had to do it in order to live out this, uh, this beautiful example of raising children in the fear of God. Just one thing as, as a side note is that... Um, I believe by their own words, I can say this, that if, if you're now sending your children to, to public schools and to public universities, you, you need to realize you're sending them to religious institutions set against the God of creation. And, and you know, if you... Let, let me give you an illustration. So if you have a big sore on your head that's bleeding and never heals, and you say, the doctors can't cure me, and you say, Brother Paul, could you, could you pray or do something and maybe come up with an answer? And I say, well, I'm no doctor, but I'll, I'll watch you. So at one o'clock in the morning, I see that you get up out of bed, and the clock strikes one, and you smack your head against the wall, and then you go back to bed. And then clock strikes two, you get up and you do it again, and go through 24 hours, and you've beat yourself rather badly against the wall, and I come to you and say, well, I'm no doctor, but I think I've found your problem. <laughs> you, you're sitting there, so many people, and they're going, I don't know why we're losing our generations. I don't know why. Because you're sending them to religious institutions that hate your God. And you need to realize that. And you know, it's funny, I, I hear you say that, and um, I wrote about that in Family Driven Faith in 2007, and there were ministries that wouldn't have me at events be because I was saying that. Just, just, just to show you how the worm has turned, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, there, 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 were, there were folks who, you know, I was dangerous and an extremist and an elitist and, and, and all this other stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm, it's, it's here and, and we see it and, and there's no 
denying it. Um, and it's unfortunate that we've had to get to, to this point, right? Um, I think it's probably one thing you didn't want to be proved right about. No, not at all. Not, not at all, no. Well, shifting gears a little bit um, to ecclesiology, how would you define church discipline and how can it actively be applied? I think church discipline is, in one sense, it's everything a church does in the process of disciple-making. So there's the formative discipline that is the, the kind of warp and woof of church life. We don't often think of it in these terms, but uh, older writers did. And you, whenever you read a good book on church discipline, they'll always start with formative discipline. You want to see Christ formed inside of people they, to become more and more like Christ. How does that happen? Well, it happens through the ordinary means of grace. It happens through the preaching and teaching of God's word, through fellowship, through encouragement to uh, live out godly lives and making disciples of others, evangelism, all of those things, the, the, the casual conversations that you have with believers to remind each other of things that we know to be true in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, uh, memorizing scripture, uh, all, all of the things that you would think of that help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that is, that is formative. And the church ought to be facilitating that and promoting that. When we think of church discipline, we tend to think only of the corrective side of discipline, and that's vitally important as well. But where the ordinary means of grace are emphasized and where there is common commitment in a church so that you know, when you come into the membership of a church, it is with a conscious awareness of yes, we're going to follow Christ with this body of believers in these ways that we all see to be in the scripture. Corrective discipline will be the exception. And it's what must happen whenever someone who has made the commitment to be formed more and more into Christ begins to deviate and walk away. And most of the time, corrective discipline will take place without many people knowing about it. I mean, Jesus says that in Matthew 18. If you see your brother in sin, you go to him and you confront him, correct him. If he hears you, you've won your brother. That's it. You know, you don't, you don't put a picture up on Instagram saying, I'm so, so glad I was able to correct my brother today about this. Or you don't go and report it to the church. You just, you know, it's what Christians do. We help each other. If he doesn't hear you, you take a couple others with you for that same purpose. And if he hears you then, praise God, it's over. You don't need to make a big deal out of that. This is the way Christians live. We help each other. And it, it's only when that rises to the level of uh, unwillingness to hear two or three brothers or sisters are coming to you to help you that Jesus says, then you tell it to the church. I mean, then it, this is a serious matter because now we've got a case that has uh, devolved into something that if it is not corrected, is going to be scandalous and the church goes after this brother or sister saying, look, we welcomed you in here because we affirmed your discipleship. And now you're, you said you were going to live this way. You're not living this way and you're not willing to repent when we're calling upon you to repent. The whole church is calling upon you in the name of Jesus Christ to repent. And, and it's interesting in Matthew 18, Jesus says, and if he refuses to hear even the church, like, can you imagine that? The authority that I vested in the church. If they don't do that, then you treat them uh, like a Gentile tax collector. You, that, that means you no longer affirm them to be a member of the church. You remove them from membership. You excommunicate them. First Corinthians 5, you hand them over to the devil 
in hopes that their soul might be saved in the day of Christ. But that too, it's, it's not punitive. You're not saying, oh, we're just going to kick you out of the church because we don't want you here anymore. It's corrective. You want to see them come to Christ, but you, if they're not willing to return to Christ, the, the glory of Christ is too great to let that go on in the body. So those are the normal ways of corrective discipline. There are exceptions to that. If something is so scandalous, so public, so immediate, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul doesn't say, well, you know, look, we got to get two or three people to go talk to this person. He says, no. He says, remove that church member. Do it decisively. Do it immediately because this is of such a nature that if you let this go on in the church, you're actually communicating to the world and to the unseen principalities and powers that scandalous sin can go unaddressed among the people of God who say that they are living for and worshiping the holy God and are committed to being a holy people. And you, you should be embarrassed if you let that go on in your church. There's a, there's a teaching I do on why you should never discipline your child. And um, yes. <laughs> and, um, and Another washer shocking statement. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it also applies to the church. Uh, I've heard a lot of men, you know, beat their chest. Uh, you know, I discipline my children. I hear about churches, you know, we discipline. But what I mean by that is this. In, the, in 2 Timothy, he says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training and righteousness. If you're not willing to do these things, don't pound your chest and say that you discipline children or churches. We have a responsibility to dedicate our lives to teaching the scriptures, to reproving with the scriptures, to correcting with the scriptures, to training with the scriptures. And then that last part of discipline, that's the last part. And, and it is important and it is biblical, but, but like Tom said, it, it begins the moment someone comes to your church and you preach the gospel to them. Um, whenever I'm having to deal with contracts or, or negotiations and, and I'm trying to, I have someone else with me and I'm trying to train them about how do you do these things, I always tell them whatever you don't deal with up front will come back and bite you. So if you deal with souls, as some of our fathers in the faith, as scripture commands, if you deal with souls that way, you'll have less discipline problems at the end. It's the same way with children. Don't, don't say, I discipline. You know, okay, do you teach with the scriptures? Do you rebuke the child with the scriptures? Do you correct and encourage the child with the scriptures and the church member? Do you train them in righteousness, in the means of grace? And then at the end, there's discipline. Yeah, both, both of you, your responses have just been outstanding, uh, and it's, it's very good. I just want to add one little footnote that when someone comes to you and says, which is quite often in our day, you know, is, isn't discipline cruel? I think you can answer this way. Well, what's the purpose of discipline? It's for the purity of the church, for one thing. That's not cruel. 
And it's also to heal the person who's sinning. So is it cruel for a doctor to give medicine to his patient? Of course not. So when you come with discipline, it's very important that you're honest with the individual. But you also come in a loving spirit. You don't try to pound it into them. You don't get angry. If you discipline wrongly, it's like a parent yelling at his child. That's no way to discipline a child. So when you come with love but firmness in, in, in the biblical emphasis, you're aiming for purity and you're aiming for the restoration of the individual. It's a medicine. That's positive on both sides. So let's, keep, let's see discipline as church discipline when it's done rightly as, as a real blessing for the church and a real blessing for the individual. Yeah, I think one thing that you said, Tom, uh, it's not punitive. The, the church is not given the sword. The church is given the keys. And so there's a difference between punishment and discipline. And for the church, it's not church punishment. We're not seeking to administer justice. But that's, we leave that to the civil magistrate and to God. We're seeking to discipline and to correct. May, may I add one thing? Because I've seen mistakes made on this, um, especially with young pastors going into churches that have not been taught this at all. And there's something, maybe even a scandalous sin that comes up, and you think, we, we just have to excommunicate this person, you know, and I need to go through the steps, I need to take this. And what winds up happening, if a, if a man does that immediately that way, it's preacher discipline, it's not church discipline. The church has to be taught. And you might have to let some things go in ways that you wouldn't let them go down the road because you haven't had the opportunity to teach them. And I'm not saying paper over it, ignore it, or call it anything less than it is, but I am saying you take those opportunities to teach the church and say, this is what the Word of God says we're supposed to do, and you've never done it, and you're not doing it now, and we're in sin, and we need to repent, and we need to decide, are we going to follow Christ or not? And, and don't, don't take it upon yourself to go to somebody and say, look, you can't come back to church here, or you're, you're, I'm kicking you out of the church. That, that's preacher discipline. And the church is called upon by Christ to carry this out. So the most significant thing you need to do is teach the congregation what it means to be the stewards of the oracles of God that he's given to us, which include these keys to um, decide who's welcomed in and who can no longer be welcomed in. But until you do that, you may... You may have to gulp to get to where the congregation needs to be led so that you can begin to practice this. Here's a good one, maybe helpful for some. Um, how should a married couple with differing views on baptism, so pedo-baptist or credo-baptist, how should they go about finding a church? They should just find the best Reformed Baptist church they can and join. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. I, I believe that, um, first of all, we all believe that God is absolutely sovereign and God has brought these two together. It has happened. And um, it, it's going to be what it always is. It's going to be settled by them lovingly, patiently dealing with one another, going through Scripture. And uh, the man obviously must, must lead his wife 
but not lead his wife by any coercion of the conscience, but trust the Lord. We, we all know that uh, we sit up here and our Presbyterian, more Presbyterian brothers that are here have a deep appreciation for the Reformed Baptist. The Reformed Baptists have a deep appreciation, and that needs to be held in that marriage. And I believe that if they'll just be in the Word, and they'll be in prayer, and deal patiently, God will bring them through that. You know, that may not sound like the exact answer, but in a case like that, you're dealing with conscience. And um, one of the things that I, I do want to say in the leadership of the home, um, be very careful. You do not have the right to manipulate conscience or coerce. Uh, you lead by teaching, by prayer, and by example, and you need to be very, very patient. And, and from that moment, I have nothing left to say, but I know that God will work it out. Yeah, and sometimes it can come, it's a big issue for certain couples, but sometimes it can come pretty far, and uh, if they work together in love, I think normally, normally God will work it out where they can be united. But there have been cases on both sides where, for example, in the Pado baptist side, where, say, the father has really been convicted that he needs to baptize his children, not that they're saved, they have to be born again. So he and his wife are agreed on that, but on the fact that need to be born again. But actually, that the man stands up and takes the vows, and he agrees, his wife respects the conscience of his wife, she believes everything that is being vowed in its essence, but just doesn't agree with the, 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 the baptism of the, of the children. And so she either stands beside him and doesn't take the vow or sits in the pew, doesn't take the vow. Uh, and they both respect each other for that. I've seen that happen in, in extreme cases. And they go forward with somewhat the same principles of how they're going to raise their children, even though they disagree on whether the child should be baptized. Let, let me just say this as, as, as a paedo-baptist. I, 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 I tell people this openly. I have more Reformed Baptist friends around the world than I do Presbyterians. And, 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 and sometimes I, when I go to Europe, one time I was sitting on the plane coming back, I just preached 19 sermons, and I, I was thinking on the way back, hey, they were all in Baptist churches. <laughs> in, in, in our seminary, I don't even know a lot of the students if they're Baptist or not. We don't make a big deal of that. I think Baptists are more conscious of being Baptist than <laughs> Pado-Baptists are conscious of being Pado-Baptists. But, but what, what I find binding and why I love Reformed Baptists is especially those Reformed Baptists who have the experiential emphasis of conversion and the work of God in the soul. To me, that's far more important than whether you agree or not on, on, on when to baptize uh, people. Um, if the credo Baptist parent holds out long enough, eventually your child will grow up. <laughs> don't, don't take that's not good advice. Don't take that advice. Boy, I'm tempted to say something, but I better not. <laughs> All right. Um, here, this question is good. Can you further explain what is meant when it is said, we will give an account to God at the end of our lives? 
Well, um, you know, Paul says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we can receive um, the rewards or the consequences of that which we've done. And the parables of Jesus also teaches, I think this, this is all through the scripture of accountability, uh, the Luke 19, the minas, you know, the, the uh, nobleman gives one mina to each of those 10 servants and then based on what they have done with it when he comes to them, uh, their accountability determines what's going to happen, if they're going to be put in charge of many cities or if they're going to be condemned for having just buried it. And so, yeah, accountability exists. But I think sometimes Christians get afraid of this because you think, oh, my, you know, I, I've just done so poorly with opportunities in my life. And I understand that burden. I mean, I feel that in my own soul at times. But just as we will be judged on the final day based upon the grace of God that has been given to us in Jesus Christ and the righteousness of Christ will be our plea. It won't be the, as I think Paul pointed out in one of his messages with the argument won't be, you know, but Lord, we did this, we did that, we did that. No, no, no. You know, you'd say, Lord, I have Christ. Christ is my savior. His righteousness covers me. His death is paid for my sin. Just as we're judged by God's we will have God's grace covering us at the judgment for our justification. We will have God's grace covering us at the judgment for our sanctification. And when we hear, well done, good and faithful servant, it will not be because we've done everything just right that we should have done. It will be because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And you, you see that in the way the Lord rewards those or describes the reward of those who took what was entrusted to them and invested it and brought back a good return. You think, man, the the reward is way beyond the return on the investment. How does that happen? It happens the same way that you're justified, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So what does that do? Does that make us uh, lazy and antinomian? No, it should make us like Paul. I worked harder than anybody else you know, I, I, because of the grace of God in me. I'm going to give my whole life to doing what God has entrusted for me to do, knowing at the end of the day, I'm an unprofitable servant. I've only done my duty. And that any anything that the Lord says to me that is uh, approving, anything that the Lord rewards to me, it's all going to be because of Jesus Christ. And we, we live by that grace now, and we will be judged by that grace uh, in the, that great day. I think also it's extremely, I think it's a very important question because it's extremely important to, as a preacher too, to press home upon people, the, the unconverted in particular, but even God's people, the enormity of sin in the light of the judgment day. I will stand before God, the Belgian Confession of Faith says, Article 37, and give an account of every idle word, every idle word I have spoken. That's awesome. So we're very responsible creatures, how we live, how we speak. And we owe everything back to God, how we use our eyes, how we use our hands, how we use our feet, how we use the thoughts of our soul. And this awareness of the judgment day, this awareness of eternity is something we need a lot more of today to press upon the consciences of people so that they will flee to Christ, yes, and be saved, but even being saved, 
that we should live much more, as the Reformers and Puritans said, in Coram Deo, in the presence of God, knowing we come before him on, on the great day. When in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5, Paul says that, uh, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. And then he goes on and he gives two motivations for ambition. To be, to be pleasing to the Lord. And I call them, one is the moon and the other is the sun. One is a greater light and one is a lesser light. The lesser light is for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So that, that is the first, that, that is a true motivation for Paul to be pleasing to God. But then he gives us a greater light, his greatest motivation, which is this, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And the, the genitive there, the love of Christ, is, is not Paul's great love for Christ, but Christ's great love for Paul was the great motivation. And I believe that in some ways for me, this, this, I deal with this in the same way that I deal with the Trinity. With regard to the Trinity, I must simply look at the scriptures that confirm that God is one and submit to that. And, and I must submit to the scriptures that, that speak of three real and distinct individuals who are God. And here I know that I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And I know that, as Dr. Beakey said, I will be judged for even every careless word. Um, but the judge is, is a father and a brother. And the one thing that I want all of us to realize is that this is to be taken seriously. But I find most saints, when they look in the mirror, they're saddened and frightened by what they see. I know that oftentimes I am. And I find encouragement in something that one night just came into my mind. God did not do all of this. God did not send his son to become flesh in the likeness of sinful flesh, to live among us, to die having suffered the wrath of God. God did not do all of this, saint, so that when you step into heaven, the first thing you see on his face is a scowl of disappointment. And that's what so many of you have in the back of your mind. You look in the mirror of God's word, just like You'd be surprised if you went home with me how normal my life is and how much it is like yours. I, I don't want to pretend anything. And, and I know how you feel. Like, how can it be? I mean, there's all these great men and these great books and, and then there's me, right? You look in the mirror, there's me. Where do I go? Jesus didn't suffer what he suffered so that the first time you see him, 
He looks at you with a scowl. Oh, be, be so encouraged. I'm sure Dr. Beakey could say that you probably know the quote better than I do, but the pastor who was struggling with assurance and one night supposedly has a dream and he sees standing at the gates of heaven and, and a horn blows and, and uh, this great entourage, glorious trumpets and these saints come in and he asks the angel, who are they? And it was something like, well, they're the patriarchs. And he said to himself, I can't enter in with them. And then another horn blows and more glory. And who are these? These are the prophets. I can't enter in with them. And then another horn blows, far more trumpets, far more glory. And here come the apostles and the martyrs. And he says, I can't enter in with them. But then glory upon glory upon glory is revealed. Trumpets are blowing. And here he sees Rahab. Failure after failure in the scriptures. Great sinners and yet great glory. And he goes, I can enter in with them. And uh, I probably didn't get all that right, but you get the point. <laughs> it was really Manasseh. Really <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I knew he would know that. <laughs> I, I just always hate it when I talk to him. <laughs> I'll bring up something and, you know, paraphrase it. And he'll go, he'll quote it completely and then give me, that's in Flavel chapter 1, page 692, right on the right, I think, second column. And me, I'm just happy I could read the book. <laughs> You're making all that up. <laughs> oh. That's why I said... Actually, it's a wonderful story, because... <laughs> See, <laughs> when he, when no, he, no. <laughs> Presbyterians are just Reformed Baptists who can read. Well, Reformed Baptists believe in everything Presbyterians believe in. They just forget the water. <laughs> no, we didn't. We just need more of it. <laughs> he's, he's never read John 13. Peter says... If you, if you wash my feet, you've washed me completely. Don't need that whole one. And then the one, look, there's a lot of water here. We can baptize. Hi, Graham, I this over? Uh, or are, we, are we past time now? I, I, hey, I, now you guys know what it's like when it's just us and you're not around. Yeah. Okay, tell this story right. Oh, you, you, you're totally right. But then the, the wonderful part was at the end, See, he, see, all these people had come to him. James Kennedy, this is a, a pastor, actually, who came in great darkness. And he was used for many people. And he just had a very dark deathbed. And, and James Kennedy from, uh, or John Kennedy, rather, the, the, the famous um, uh, Scottish preacher from, from, from Dingwall came to see him, couldn't encourage, nobody could encourage, his elders couldn't encourage him. He was in this darkness. He had this dream. And then when he saw Manasseh coming, who filled the streets of Jerusalem with the blood of the saints, uh, the voice said to him in his dream, can you not go in with him? And he woke up at that point. And then suddenly he thought, 
wow, this dream is really telling me something very important. Yes, I can go in with him. He, he, he called his wife. He said, go get Dr. Kennedy. Go get, get, get all my elders coming around. Old humic fail can go in by the blood of Jesus. And uh, that, that's the beauty of it all. It, we, we get saved only by the blood. Well, that is a wonderful note for us to end on this, this morning. Thank you so much, gentlemen. Give our panelists a round of applause.